0: I first read Ulysses when I was a student in Boston. I must confess, I signed up for the class because it had only one book on the required reading list. <laughs> the course blurb said the novel was set in Dublin on the 16th of June, 1904, and all the action takes place over 18 chapters. Sure, I was 18 years old. Those 18 chapters would be no bother to me. Furthermore. I certainly knew my hometown of Dublin better than any of my American classmates. The state of me. I had reckoned I'd be literally streets ahead of everyone else. I registered for the class, bought the book, and went off to the library for myself. We had to read chapter one before the first class. That first chapter of Ulysses put manners on me. One lad, Buck Mulligan, was fond of speaking in Latin. An English fella, Mr Haynes, was speaking in Irish. This moody, brooding other one had an Irish-Greek name, Stephen De Dallas. I remembered the illustrated Greek myths I used to read in the children's section of the Finglas Public Library. Wasn't De Dallas that fella who designed a labyrinth and made wings of wax that had a deadly outcome for his son. One chapter in, and Ulysses was proven to be a Joycean labyrinth for me. I wondered if I too would crash. And another thing these three characters were living in a tower somewhere near a place called Kingstown. I was born, bred, and buttered in Dublin. I'd never heard tell of this place, Kingstown. The chapter revealed it was somewhere near Sandy Cove. There I was, on the fifth floor of a library in Boston, wishing I could ring me da, a bread man in Dublin, and ask him, where the Jays is his Kingstown? <laughs> and yeah, James Joyce's first chapter, Ulysses, put me under a spell too. Buck Mulligan called the Irish Sea, "snock green. That was disgusting, and kind of funny too. The English lad, Mr Haynes, thought we ought to speak Irish in Ireland. He had a point. As for Stephen's observation that the cracked looking glass of a servant is a symbol for Irish art, I wasn't exactly sure what that meant, but it felt like there was eating and drinking in it. Maybe me ma was right. All artists are cracked, and Irish artists are the most cracked of them all. Our first class with Professor Tom O'Grady was a revelation. He gave us Joyce's 1921 Homeric scheme. Joyce himself promised it would help the reader understand my damned monster of a novel. Professor O'Grady recommended we familiarise ourselves with Robert Graves' version of the Greek myths. I found it in the UMass Library and thought, ah, here, isn't one book with big words enough to be getting on with? I took myself to the children's section in the Boston Public Library, got the illustrated Greek myths again, and sure, I was flying. There would be no crashing out for this Dubliner. We spent the whole of the semester reading Ulysses, and I loved it. I loved the 18 chapters, the 18 different Homeric parallels, the 18 different styles of writing, the 18 different colours, the 18 different organs. I was 18, and I was in love with characters walking the streets of Dublin while I was sitting in a Boston library. But most of all, I loved the raw, sometimes brutal, but always honest humanity of Joyce's novel. Every June, I go back to Ulysses. Sure, what else would I be doing? And every year, I discover new treasures from between the covers of James Joyce's masterpiece. Here are six of this year's findings. One, the novel starts south side, but it ends on the north side. (laughs) Jimmy Joyce was a pure genius. He knew there's more crack to be had in order to the Liffey. <laughs> Two, Leopold and Molly's family name, Bloom. is like a command to grow and blossom. Three, some of the grub from the novel is lovely. A gorgonzola sandwich and a glass of burgundy is delicious. But you can keep your fried pork kidney. Four, Ulysses is set on one day in one city, but the themes of human loneliness, loss, and love mean it could be any day in any city in the world. Five, I think Joyce loved Homer, and I'm going to guess that Homer would have loved Joyce. Both writers knew one and true. At the end of the day, everybody just wants to get home. Six. Ulysses does have a very male point of view. However, Joyce was long enough at Nora Barnacle to know it's wise to give a woman the last word. <laughs> Which brings me to my favourite chapter, Molly Bloom's chapter. The last chapter of Ulysses moved me as a student, and it still does. Back then, everyone at uni was banging on about the complete lack of punctuation, the paucity of paragraphs, the wonky syntax, the sassy flow and bite of Molly's words. However, that first semester at university, I'd been diagnosed with dyslexia, and I'd taken my first lover. So Molly Bloom's soliloquy made pure sense to me. <laughs> Besides, you got to love a chapter and a person that begins and ends with yes.
1: Thanks very much, Rachel. That was lovely. I'm um, talking about Molly Bloom. Uh, Joyce had a little bit too much for by the end of it and uh, he wrote this poem or a a song it's a parody of Molly Brannigan and uh, he called it uh, Post Ulyxum Scriptum after writing uh, after writing Ulysses and uh, we call it uh, Pretty Molly Bloom Again and you can see where she came to him in a dream and she says uh, what are you meddling with my old business for and she had a coffin in her hand And she said, uh, if you don't change, this is for you. So (laughs) this is is his frightened response. Man dear did you never hear of books of Molly Bloom at all As plump an Irish beauty, sir, as any Levi bloomin' tall If she sat in the vice regal box, Tim Healy'd have no room at all, but curl up in a corner at a glance from her eye, the tale of her ups and downs a daisy fell a handy book. That it covered the whole world across from Jib right on to Sandy Hook. But now that tale is told cone I've lost my daring dandy look since Molly Bloom has gone and left me here for to die. Man, dear, I remember when my roving time was troubling me. We picnicked fine in storm or shine, in France and Spain and Hungary. And she said I'd be her first and last while the wine I poured went bubbling free. Now every male she meets with, has a finger in her pie man dear i remember how it all the heart and brain of me i arrayed her for the bridal but oh she proved the bane of me with more puppies sniffing her than the wooers of penelope she's left me on the doorstep like a dog For to die, my left eye is awash and his neighbour full of water man I cannot see the lass I limbed for Ireland's gamest daughter man When I hear her lovers tumbling in their thousands for to quarter man If I were sure I'd not be seen, I'd sit down and cry. May you live, may you love, like this gaily spinning earth so bold. And every morn, a gallows sun, awake you to fresh wealth of gold. But if I cling like a child to the clouds that are your petticoats. Oh, Molly, handsome Molly, she won't let me die. "'Sure you won't let me die.'"
2: In the years immediately before the Second World War, a small boy living in Paris would rush home from school every day and burst into his father's study, where that scholarly man would open his arms and say, "'Come, my prince, kiss papa.'" and tell him what you learned today. The little boy was called Alex, and his father was the renowned scholar Paul Leon. Coincidentally, Paul Leon was also the agent and unpaid secretary, as well as the friend of James Joyce. And the only time little Alex was denied his routine was when he was told, Mr. Joyce is with Papa, and they must not be disturbed. In 1992, in the National Library in Dublin, I heard Alex Leon tell that story. He was 67 then, but looked older, small and plump, gentle in manner, soft-spoken, with a humorous glint in his eye. The sort of man who makes you remember that much of European culture as we know it springs from Judaism, although he was working in the soft drinks industry. And he was in Dublin to celebrate and witness the opening of 19 envelopes of a priceless literary heritage. Alex Leon's roots lay in almost unbearable suffering, but he seemed determined not to allow it to embitter him. When Paris fell to the Germans, James Joyce and Nora escaped to Zurich. Paul Leon and his wife Lucy, a fashion correspondent for the New York Herald Tribune, took refuge in the South. As a Russian-born Jew, Léon was in immediate and terrible danger. But he believed that he had a duty to save as many of Joyce's papers as he could, including one of the original drafts of Ulysses. So while the Joyce's achieved safety, the Léons returned to Paris, where Paul collected as much as he could into 19 large envelopes, then trekked with them in a handcart through Paris to deliver them, to the Irish Embassy. The instruction was that they were not to be opened for 50 years. Presumably, Leon thought Ireland would at least be grateful. He was not to know that the de Valera government would refuse to allow an Irish representative to attend Joyce's funeral in Zurich because the Nobel laureate had not died a Catholic. And there was another lesser-known connection for Paul Léon. His selfless efforts in Paris on behalf of Irish literary heritage meant that the Gestapo moved in on him, and he was arrested on August the 21st, 1941, and taken to the internment camp at Drancy. Giorgio Joyce appealed to the Irish government to intervene on his behalf. The answer was no. Anti-Semitism wasn't mentioned but one can't help wondering. The regime at Drancy, a staging point for Auschwitz, was vicious. And in December, Alex Leon, then 16, and his mother were herded along with other relatives of internees to see Paul being loaded on the death train. Photographs of Paul Leon show a lean, slightly stooped man with a receding hairline and deep-set eyes. Distinguished is the word that springs to mind. On that day in the National Library, his little prince described his father, now almost unrecognizable from the effects of malnutrition. With his feet hugely swollen, unable to stand, he was supported by two fellow inmates. Lucy tried to rush to him, but a cattle truck intervened. And when it was gone, so were the detainees, now on their way to Auschwitz. The Leons learned later that Paul was dead 18 days later. He was one of a contingent being force marched to the Bachnau extension of Auschwitz. Unable to keep up, Paul Leon was shot out of hand. Before his arrest, he'd been active again in Joyce's interest. Their effects were being sold off to defray the unpaid rent. James and Nora had left behind. He and other friends bought them. And many years later, the then Irish government bought the artefacts from Alex Leon's family. And they're now in the James Joyce Centre in Dublin. But it can never rub out the shameful hypocrisy which made the sacrifice of Paul Leon necessary. Official Ireland spouted its spirituality, decency, humanity, its passion for the arts. But artists weren't included it can never be forgotten that the Irish government refused Nora's request to repatriate her husband's body. And certainly, while we blame de Valera justifiably, it undoubtedly would have been a similar response from any Irish government of the time. But Nora Barnacle had a long memory. When it came to donate the manuscript of Finnegan's Wake ten years later, it was the British Museum she chose, not our National Library. Alex Leon died only in 2018, the last survivor of and witness to a shameful episode in Irish history. And hopefully, when scholars consult those precious papers in the National Library, they will hear somewhere in the ether, the flying footsteps of a little prince rushing down the Rue Casimir-Perrier in pre-war Paris to fling himself into the arms of the father who had no premonition of the terrible darkness about to engulf Europe.
3: This is called Five-Minute Ulysses. James Joyce, yes. Bloomsday, yes. And the people who like him, they gather to bless and commess, and indeed they, yes, I confess. And he wrote in the stream of consciousness, yes, where you don't say your woman did this and then left, or your man moseys in and says he to the room, but bloom, that's the hero. You're inside his head, or you're sailing the seas of his marital bed, or wherever you're led by the thoughts that go drifting and shifting in his yes as he saunters the city of yes and he glancing at motts, and he getting the hots and he looking at the sky with his roving eye eye and he bumps into neighbours performing his labours all on a Dublin days and the words like birds confetti fall of language and the slang and the yes and the porter in the taps and the sandy cove talk and the sandy mount walk and the sandwich and a jar in davy burden's bar and his memories mingle and jingle in his pocket and tinkle old songs of the yes and the day does be boilin' like blazes yes and the bells and the smells and the apples and the chapels and the hope and the sweet lemon soap and stephen who don't be believing in God and he's single and free and fresh back from Paris and his dad is a beast and his mom is deceased. But here at the end, he encounters a friend in the kips where the lips of the ladies of the night to be calling like summertime sirens. And what's the book about? Well, itself, I suppose. And yourself and myself and herself down the road. All you lasses and all you lads, Ulysses, his missus. See, she's called Molly. At home in her bed and there's thoughts in her head and some of them shrewd and some of them rude and some of them flirty and some downright, yes. And food for the forehead in a novel he borrowed called Sweets of Sin or something. Summarise, Ulysses, no bother at all. It's normal people in Edwardian costume. (laughs) Soliloquy, yes beautiful word, like solitary and eloquent, got married, yes funny thought, yes, if words could fall in love, well think of the children they'd have, yes, like Nora met Jimmy, their wedding so jolly, kind of a silly, yes, cemetery cemetery, Paddy Dignam dead, and up to Glasnevin and maybe to heaven, and Leopold thinking his thoughts, yes, in his carriage yes, thinking of his marriage and the city royals around him, and the noise, and the boys, and they selling the papers, and thinking up capers and gougers and gutties and bantams and phantoms and moon fruit and mirth and mothers giving birth and bloom such a darling old dear there's a bit in the middle that isn't a doddle in night town they call it drunks falling and bawling and singing their song and it's probably too long but no need to bother with that bit just skip it or skim Sure would all be the same to gentleman Jim. Like an album you'd say. Sit back and press play. If you don't like a chapter, no mind and no matter. Don't get yourself vexed. Go on to the next. It's not Matthew or Mark or John or Luke, sure it's only a book at the end of the day. It's music, it's magic. Meet it halfway. Well, it's many a year since sweet baby James. And his world has grown up to a right old Hames, for lately there's a sadness and a madness in the papers till you're scared to look. But as Leo Bloom says, the answer is love. Always was, always will, till the great until. We're flawed and we're weak, but in you I seek home. In you, I am more than a sentence. And there's no point in denial. But James would remind you through trouble and trial there's things to be proud of still. Yes, him, yes, more the people we love or a novel you read or a red weathered moon or something was said in your kitchen. A radio playing, a kindness, a kiss, someone you miss, a riverbank in June or strolling in the summer through Stephen's green in the yes of the yes of the yes. James Joyce Yes, that's what it means. A book worth a look for the secret it tells. We can walk from the tomb, and we still might bloom. For the very last word will be yes. Thank you.
4: Searching in every part For her bold sweetheart And his ice cream cart Her English was bad It cannot be denied And so to herself In Italian she cried Oh, oh Antonio He's Sad brew the plight of this fairy young lass. She'd faint at the sight of an ice cream glass. She dreamed nigh every day. He'd come back to stay, then he'd fade away. Her old teddy gird each day she'd parade, and this she would sing to the tunes that it played. Oh,
5: December 13th is the feast day of Saint Lucy, Santa Lucia, the virgin martyr whose eyes were gouged out by soldiers trying to corrupt her. In the Julian calendar, the 13th of December marked the shortest day of the year. In traditional representations, Santa Lucia wears a wreath with a candle on her head to light the way out of the darkness into spring. Lucia Joyce was named after the saint by her famously irreligious father. He understood the world through words, but she came to know it through her body. She became a dancer and trained with modern dance's great revolutionaries. She traveled Europe with an experimental ensemble, was filmed by Jean Renoir, was reviewed in major newspapers. James Joyce may yet be known as his daughter's father, one famous critic wrote. As her father's success grew, however, Lucia's dwindled. When he started going blind, Like her namesake, Lucia became his eyes for him, taking dictation when he could not write, narrating the world for him when he could not see. On the 13th of December, 2010, I found myself in Paris. I had recently miscarried during my first pregnancy and was looking for something to distract me from my grief. In my luggage was a well-thumbed biography of Lucia by Carol Loeb Schloss. I had been puzzling over Lucia's story for some time, The abrupt end to her burgeoning artistic career, the gaps in her tragic history, the mystery of her mental illness. When Joyce died in 1941, someone thought to burn the letters she wrote to him. A voluminous correspondence that her mother maybe, her brother perhaps, thought too dangerously intimate for the paddy stinks and Mickey mucks of the Joycean industry, which had already sprung up around the author to get their hands on but a blank page can be far more damaging than words. We can fill the gaps with our own intentions. This is rich, imaginative territory for a writer. In 1932, Lucia Joyce gave up dancing. At her father's 50th birthday party in February, which was also the 10th anniversary of the publication of Ulysses, Lucia became violent towards her mother and was committed to an asylum for the first time. In the years following, Lucia was given to frequent disappearances and impolitic promiscuity. She was treated by dozens of doctors, including the father of psychoanalysis Carl Jung, and a famous obstetrician called Henri Veen. In late 1933, under his care, she spent a week convalescing at Chateau de Serene. It is unclear from extant records exactly what Lucia was recovering from or why she was being treated by a gynecologist. Had she been pregnant? Had she lost the baby? Had she decided, like so many creative women of the time, like Zelda Fitzgerald, like Peggy Guggenheim, to have a termination? Had she been persuaded by her parents, already so shamed by the unfettered frankness of Lucia's dancing, by her erratic behavior, by her expressive sexuality, that it would be impossible for someone as unstable as she was to be a mother? I convinced myself that I would get closer to finding answers to these questions if I travelled to Paris, the City of Light, where Lucia had first fallen in love with life, with dancing, where she had bounced along its boulevards to the studios where she diligently learned her craft, to the theatres where she showed the world that she too could be an artist. Perhaps Paris, I thought, would remember her the way Dublin remembered her father. But I found no physical trace of Lucia in Paris, There were no plaques in her memory. Many of the spaces where she danced had been pulled down. At Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop founded by Joyce's patron and publisher Sylvia Beach, the bookseller I spoke to had never heard of her. But I was not really seeking out the lost historical facts. I was not looking for evidence but for an emotional truth, a cathartic release of my own ill feeling. I was seeking to forget my own loss, by losing myself in Lucia's story. Like my baby, Lucia was a light snuffed out before her time. She died in an asylum in Northampton on December 12th, 1982, the day before her namesake's feast day. A dancer understands the world through her body. And as I walked the streets of Paris in Lucia's ghostly footsteps, I was trying to walk myself out of my own a body which had failed to embrace the shadow self that I had nurtured for four months, that I had imagined as a fully-fledged child already, that I had even already named. Though my feet ached and my legs buckled, though my mind was emptied out, as the day faded I could still feel the hollow of a scooped-out absence underneath my loose tunic. When I got back to my lodgings, close to midnight, there were traces of blood in my underwear still. The next few years passed quickly, I got pregnant, had one little life-giving boy, two years later had another. In 2017, I gave birth to a baby girl in Hollis Street, the lying-in hospital memorialised so memorably in Ulysses. She was expected to arrive on Bloomsday, June 16th, but she was in a rush to meet the world and came three weeks early. Like Joyce, I saw something when I held her for the first time and she opened her eyes. I called her Lucy and Olivia. She brought with her the light.
6: Um, Dear friends, it's wonderful to be here and after all we've been through as Keith Richards says, it's great to be anywhere. (laughs) Um, One day in Paris in the 1920s a violent thunderstorm broke out and James Joyce quaked with fear. Look at your children an encouraging friend said, they're not frightened. That said Joyce is because they have no real religion. As a child, Jim was very religious, one of his sisters recalled. I think all of Jim's loves were recreated in the love of God. This would have been news to the pro-Catholic Dublin Review, which liked to compare the world of Ulysses to the sewers of Paris and the French decadents, all of whom were, of course, atheists. Joyce's brother Stan, who was a militant atheist, wished only that this might have been true. However, he said sadly, he who has loved God in his youth can never love anything that is less than divine. Ulysses could be one of the sacred texts of modernity. William Faulkner, the American novelist, said the only way to approach it was with faith. And that's not as preposterous as it might sound, because a lot of works of high modernism climax in a moment of Eucharist. Think of the moment when the Madeleine is dipped in the cup of tea in Proust, or when Stephen Dedalus receives communion in the most surprising way possible, when he's offered a coffee and a bun by a semi-Jewish canvasser of ads, Leopold Bloom. I don't think that Joyce was a secularist. He was anti-clerical, certainly, but he was not anti-religion. He believed so deeply, in fact, in what the Jesuits taught him that he was shocked to discover that quite a few of them did not believe it themselves. Remember the one who asks the businessmen to think of him as a spiritual accountant. Too many priests had settled for social power, and Joyce showed this in stories in Dubliners. Instead of settling for what he wanted, the divine, they settled for this world rather than the next. Now, that, that isn't to say that Joyce despised the efficiency of the church. After all, we've been hearing how brilliantly he emulated church practices by permitting his followers to pick out a single day of each year, June the 16th, as a recurring feast day on which to celebrate that communion between Bloom and Daedalus. Neither man ever says, do this in memory of me. Yes, as we can see, the cult grows year by year by year. It has its roots of pilgrimage, its special foods, special objects, its ritual observances. And, of course, it's priestly decoders of the sacred text. People like me. (laughs) Um, A lot of the surrealists who idolized Joyce in Paris had themselves been raised as Catholics. But their reconfigured faith was filled with dogmas, and edicts, and excommunications. Joyce took over the more celebratory aspects of his religion. Think of Molly at the end, a believer in a female priesthood, inseminating Leopold during their tryst on Hoth Hill by passing seedcake into his mouth, um, another disguised version of the Eucharist. Um, Bloom, of course, is understandably skeptical of some church practices. When he goes into All Hallows, he watches the old ladies receive communion at morning mass. Good idea, the Latin, he says, stupefies them first. <laughs> but this is auto-criticism. Joyce's own book begins on its opening page with a quote from the old Latin mass, "Introibo ad altare dei, I will go to the altar of God. And it comes to a grand climax when the intellectual Daedalus alters the gender of the Godhead and walks into the red light district, a deam qui laetificat juventutem mem, to the goddess who brings joy to my youth. The book is filled with tender evocations of Eucharist. For instance, Bloom distributes bread to the seagulls who fly over the River Liffey, and in his endless kindness to all forms of life, as when he rescues Daedalus from the brothel, he does seem Christ-like, or when he suffers persecution for his gentleness. I can well imagine, his friend Francini Bruni said, that Joyce's head was full of this mystery when he wrote Ulysses, and that therein lies the point of this story of a new martyrdom. Bruni was very amused to notice how Joyce frequented the Catholic churches of Trieste all through Holy Week, so as not to miss a single syllable, and that he would whisper the liturgies by heart in unison with the priest, even as he stood in the church porch, half in, half out of things. Bloom's problem is simple enough. He tells the drinkers in the pub, your God was a Jew, Christ was a Jew like me. Um, Perhaps Joyce was thinking of Nietzsche's famous aphorism that there was only one Christian and they crucified him. Um, One of the anti-Semite drinkers in the pub says of Bloom, there's the new Messiah for Ireland. I'll crucify him, so I will. And, of course, this is poor Bloom's penalty for saying that love is the opposite of hatred. No sooner does he say so than he is born into the heavens on a fiery chariot, and Dublin becomes, in effect, a heavenly city by the sheer divinity of Bloom's presence, because this is a man who can raise consciousness in cats or in printing machines or even in seagulls. So why then did Joyce base his central character on Odysseus of Homer rather than on the Jesus of the New Testament? Perhaps it was because Odysseus anticipated Jesus in bringing a new knowledge back from the underworld, much as Joyce himself raided the unconscious. But Joyce gave a more homely and direct reason. He said, surely living with a woman is one of the most difficult things a man has to do, and Jesus Christ never did it. (laughs) Now, Mrs. Joyce. Mrs. Joyce might have a thing or two to say about that. But her surname, as we've already been told, was Barnacle. And so, as everyone predicted, and despite the difficulties of her husband, she did stick to him forever. In the life of Jesus, ordinary people, fishermen, prostitutes, become extraordinary. It really took literature 2,000 years to catch up with this simple democratic insight. Even the open-hearted Shakespeare treated working men as comic buffoons in his comedies. And Tolstoy only described aristocrats as capable of sustained interior monologue. It took Joyce to apply the democratizing logic of Jesus and depict the dignity of the inner lives of everyday folk. So Nino Frank said once that Joyce's privacy was that of someone entering a religious order. I think the same is true of Joyce's humility. When a famous writer asked to kiss the hand that wrote Ulysses, Joyce said, no, that hand has done an awful lot of other things as well. (laughs) No hero can ever proclaim themselves as such they leave it to others to make the epic claim. And I think on this centenary of Ulysses, we could see it certainly as an Irish epic, but possibly also as a sacred text. Thank you.
4: Is the priest at home, or may he be seen? I would speak a word with Father Green. The
0: youth
4: has entered an empty hall. What a lonely sound has his light footfall. And the gloomy chambers cold and bare With a vested priest in a lonely chair The youth has knelt to tell his sins Nomne day the youth begins At Mea Kampa he beats his breast And in broken murmurs he speaks the rest I cursed three times since last Easter day At mass time once I went to play I passed the churchyard one day in haste and, and forgot, forgot to, to pray, pray for my mother's, mother's rest. At the siege, siege of Ross did my father fall. At gory my loving brothers all. I alone am left of my name and race. I will go to Wexford to take their place. I bear no hate against living thing, but I love my country above my king. So Father, bless me and let me go to die if God has ordained it so. The priest said naught but a rustling noise May the youth look up in wild surprise The robes were roughened in scarlet there Stood a yeoman captain with fiery glare With fiery glare and with fury hoist Instead have a blessing he breathed a curse 'twas a good thought boy to come here and strive for one short hour is your time to live Upon yon river three tenders float, the priests hung on one if he isn't shot. We hold this house for our Lord and King. Amen, say I, may all traitors swing. At Geneva barracks, that young man died. At passage, they have his body laid. Good people who live in peace and joy Breathe a prayer, shed a tear For the peace.
7: This morning's special programme marking Ulysses 100 was recorded recently at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, County Dublin, with support from the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sports and Media. This morning's scripts were Ulysses for Beginners by Rachel Hegarty, The Little Prince of the Rue Casimir Perrier by Eimear O'Kelly, The Five Minute Ulysses by Joseph O'Connor, The Bringer of Light by Sarah Keating, and Ulysses as Sacred Text by Declan Kyberd. This morning's music began with Pretty Molly Bloom again by James Joyce, sung by Barry Gleason. Oriental Hora played by Malachi Robinson on double bass. O Antonio performed by Dorina Gallagher on vocals and Sinead Murphy on vocals and harmonium. Santa Maria performed by Anita Vedrez on violin, Dermot Dunn on accordion and Maliki Robinson on double bass. And finally, The Croppy Boy, sung by Dorina Gallagher and Sinead Murphy. On sound were Tom Norton and Pather Carney. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey. The producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from Sunday Miscellany and other arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture.